0: That I have to go on strike to spend time
1: with my family. We tell them all the time, it's like, you guys aren't competitive wages anymore. Oh, that's not it. That's not it. It's
2: like, yeah, it is it.
3: They went on strike, then they rejected the agreement, and they rejected other agreements
2: two more times. I'm not seeing this as the end of the road this was one one step and i think there's still opportunities in
4: the future to make a different decision people think that you know the paper industry is this huge threat to forests but right now the biggest threat to forests is construction
5: it's a bit like a chicken and egg situation that you need more members in order to have the funding to establish those <laughs> things, but you need those things to build the membership and
6: organize. Yeah.
7: There's this way of talking about science that liberals embraced in the last two years. It's like, it's a religion.
6: Yeah. It's, it no, matter. that's
7: not what it is. Yeah. Science is a process of getting at the truth.
8: We didn't even talk about mental health, man, because you know how it is back in the old days. You didn't talk about your problems you did, you were considered weak.
9: Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a roundup of highlights from some of the more than 100 shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check them all out at laborradionetwork.org. This week, three strike reports, First, two, are on the three-week-old Frito-Lay strike in Topeka, Kansas, which may well be over by the time you hear this. But the strike issues are so important, including forced overtime, that's so bad the workers call them suicide shifts. On the BCTGM Voices, we'll hear from the picket line at Frito-Lay with Local 218 Chief Steward Paul Clem in Topeka. Then the Working People podcast talks with Sherry Renfro, who's worked at the Frito-Lay plant in Topeka for nine years. On the Valley Labor Report, Why did the UAW go on strike at Volvo in Dublin, Virginia? From the Rick Smith Show, Jamie Martin discusses a scheme to limit access to college in Pennsylvania and on Solidarity Works... Sealworkers Vice President Leanne Foster discusses safety and sustainability in the paper and forestry industries. The UK-based Union Dues podcast features an in-depth discussion with Zeta Holborn, co-founder of Black Activists Rising Against the Cuts and co-chair of the Artists Union of England. On the Heartland Labor Forum, Thomas Frank talks about populism and science And we wrap up this week with an interview on the 7th Street Chronicles podcast that's really going to open up your eyes and hearts as Charlotte firefighters go deep on trauma and mental health. I'm Chris Garlock for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Remember, you can find all of today's shows, along with more than 125 just like them, at laborradionetwork.org. Before we get started, if you enjoy the weekly, please take a second to show some radio podcast solidarity by liking the show and giving us a quick review. Nothing fancy or too detailed necessary. Just a few lines would be great. It really helps folks to find us and spread the word. Here's the show.
10: Welcome to the BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. I'm Michelle Ellis, Director of Digital Media. BCTGM Local 218 members in Topeka, Kansas, are in the 10th day of their strike against Frito-Lay as of this recording, hitting the picket line for the first time on July 5th, 2021. Midwest International Representative Jason Davis and the local's chief steward Paul Clemmy took a break from a rainy morning on the picket line to tell us about their most pressing issues. Do you want to start with the suicide shifts? I've been seeing this term on social media. Uh, The
11: suicide shifts are if you're scheduled from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., then they force you over for four hours. So you're working seven to seven and then they'll turn you right around and bring you in at three o'clock in the morning. So you only have eight hours off to get home, shower, clean up, see your family, get some sleep and get back. It's a huge family issue for a lot of folks yeah. that are out here and, and uh, yeah. mental health issues as well for a lot of our, our folks as well. The people on strike right now have seen their family more in the last 10 days than some of them have in three months. Oh, yes.
0: I love seeing some of the signs that our members come up with for, for uh, strike signs. One of my favorite down here that's most notable, I can't say it's favorite because it's sad actually is that the sign says, it's bad that I have to go on strike to spend time with my family. Or there's another one out here that says, it's sad that I had to go on strike to get a holiday off. That's a lot of what, what goes into the, these folks' decision as to why they're out here on the line with a lot of these members of Local 218. and Some of the same stories that I continue to hear over and over is Free Lay was a great employer 10, 15, 20 years ago. I've been there nine years, and I've watched it go downhill in that nine years. It's To where at this point, we're drawing not as qualified candidates. So I think that compounds some of the staffing issues that we face here. Uh, And a lot of issues that could be fixed through collective bargaining and through the collective bargaining process.
10: Would you say that is what is leading to some of the health and safety concerns that you have in the warehouse there?
11: we got a couple of good examples with that one. They were supposed to be a qualified forklift team. And they came in and none of them knew how to operate our style of forklift. So they had to go through a a training. And our normal training process is at least five days side by side with a trainer and then shadowed by that trainer after that for a certain amount of time. They decided they was going to send these people through two days of training and then let them loose. And I know one, one of the employees had an incident where she fell off the forklift and the forklift ran over her leg and parked on it, and these forklifts are about 10,000 pounds. Wow. So, it, needless to say, it did a lot of damage to her leg. We had another forklift driver hit a pedestrian walking through the warehouse, bruised him up pretty bad. Thankfully, that was all that happened to him. But that all came from uh, their idea of bringing untrained professionals in here and doing our job that we've been doing for years. A quick fix for a bad situation.
10: Briefly, when we first got on here, you were talking about the morale down there. The
11: morale on the line is pretty high. They're pretty excited about what's going on. They're hoping to get something out of this. It's not a party by any means. And out in this rain, we
0: have members of Local 218 still standing at the side of the road, waving their signs, asking for community support, warding off scabs going across the line, doing just just a fantastic job. The the dedication just (laughs) Yeah, you know, it humbles you. It humbles you yeah. to be a part of this. It's never a goal of ours, I think, to come to and get to a strike during negotiations. Our goal is to provide the best contracts that we can for our members. But it is a tool sometimes that is necessary. But the membership here, it's, it has been very strong. Sport on the line, the morale on the line is staying high. The community support here has been phenomenal. Yesterday, the president of the local actually uh, helped coordinate and put together a day for affiliate uh, Unions and, and affiliates of the AFL to come in um, and help booster up support. I'm going to leave a lot of the local numbers off because I'm trying not to forget anybody, but inevitably I may miss somebody. And if I do, I apologize. Uh, but we had UAW, we had the steelworkers out, United Steelworkers, we had the IBEW come out the laborers union was out yesterday the kansas building trades was out iron workers uh, sheet metal workers plumbers and pipe fitters the teamsters have been huge uh, for morale through this whole thing the the union solidarity here in topeka has been,
11: it's, outstanding. It's been great
10: is there anything you can tell us regarding your expectations or how you guys feel going back to the table
11: we're just going to stay strong on the line and hope they come back with an offer. That's the goal: is to get everybody back to work with a fair, reasonable contract. PepsiCo is a large company. This is a huge company
0: we're talking about. It, in fact, it was either yesterday or the day before uh, they put out their earnings for this quarter, blew away expectations so much to the fact that they're raising their earnings expectation for the entire So this isn't this is something that Pepsi, PepsiCo, and Frito Lay can fix they can fix this 10 times over and still make a huge problem. So it's our expectations that, yeah, that we come back to the table, we figure out something that's going to be fair.
10: For more on the activities of the BCTGM, go to bctgm.org.
12: All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. My name is Maximilian Alvarez, and we've got an important episode for y'all today. As you all may have heard by now, hundreds of workers at the Frito-Lay manufacturing and distribution plant in Topeka, Kansas, have been on strike since July 5th. Workers at Frito-Lay have endured years of disrespect, and most classifications of workers at the plant have seen their wages stagnate and and fall behind other employers. The incredibly high turnover at Frito-Lay has meant that the folks who have stayed on have been forced to work longer hours to cover the difference, with some pulling 12-hour shifts seven days a week for weeks on end. I want to thank Dan for connecting us with Sherry Renfro. Who's worked at the Frito Lay plant in Topeka for nine years and is currently on strike with her coworkers?
1: My name is Sherry Renfro. I am an employee at the Frito Lay plant in Topeka, Kansas, and we are now on strike. Yeah, we, we just can't keep people at all. And we're not, not the, you know, everybody says it's from COVID, and I, I disagree because we had 350 people or more commit to Frito Lay and leave this past year. So we're getting them in. They're just not staying. And you have to wonder, I would wonder, if it was my business, why are three hundred and fifty people walking in this plant and turn around and walking back out? What is going on? What do they not like about it? That's a lot of training. That's interviews. That's drug testing. Background checks are paying for. And I don't understand. And training. And then just have them turn around and say, you know what? And, we didn't sign up for this. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. why they're, they're leaving. And we tell them all the time, it's like, you guys aren't competitive wages anymore. Oh, that's not it. That's not it. It's like, yeah, it is it. And they will not, they don't want to compromise. They don't want to do fair bargaining. They're like, this is it. Take it or leave it. And that's the way it's been. And I think finally this year, people just, as the overtime it's just hitting everybody. And the slap in the face again, the same and we thought this year they'd be appreciative. We worked through COVID. We never shut down. We worked through all the heat and never shut down. We thought maybe this year they're going to really appreciate it and show us. Here's some. Here's a good raise. You guys have earned it. No, we get the same. Twelve cents, fifteen cents. They finally, at the end, bumped up. I think for some departments it's around forty-one cents. Some people it's thirty-seven cents. But that's still, that's not even a cost of living in any of these raises. And that just baffles me that they don't care, that they're not investing in their people. Like, you, don't you want your people to stay? Don't you want your people to stay, recommend this place to someone else? And I guess they don't. I guess they don't care. I guess we're, I think we're a dime a dozen and they're looking to save every dime they can.
12: That's a really important point that I guess I just don't want to be lost for listeners is it's not, just that they need to go find workers like they've found them they're just not doing enough to retain people right to not run them into the ground and send them running for the hills because as i understand it especially after covid like you said with all that turnover the people who are left are and who are trying to fill orders that have increased so instead of yeah like not only hiring more people and doing what you can to retain those people so you can spread those shifts out equitably you have more orders for fewer people and their way of patching that up is to just basically force everyone to do a buttload of overtime to the point that that's literally all you're doing besides sleeping
1: that's exactly the way it is and then so they started doing hiring bonuses. They said, okay, we'll do hiring bonuses. So they did. They could make maybe $500 or a couple thousand, depending on what job you apply for. And we're still not getting people in. <laughs> and we're sitting here. we worked through COVID, worked through the cold, worked through everything. And we're like, well, what about us? We're losing people here, too. We're losing even some long-term people are getting tired of leaving, getting jobs somewhere else. Why aren't you trying to keep them? I, I don't get it. I don't get Why would you not want to keep the workforce you already have there? They're already trained. They're already willing to put up with this over time to extent. And you're not doing more to keep them, retain them. Not all the people that we've lost are all new people. I mean, there's been some senior people that have decided this and they're tired of it. This is it. Had enough. <laughs> so they leave and then we have another open spot. And guess what? Now we got to fill those open spots more over time. It's a vicious cycle.
13: You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison.
3: Volvo Trucks has a manufacturing plant in Dublin, Virginia. They manufacture actually all of the Volvo trucks that are sold in North America, which is very cool. That is based, as the kids say. And UAW Local 2069 represents 2,900 workers at this facility. Uh, There are about 3,300 workers total there, and UAW Local 2069 represents 2,900 of them. As regular listeners of the show will know all of the nearly 3,000 UAW members have been on and off strike, mostly on, but some off strike since April the 17th, not long after the UMWA strike here in Alabama began. It finished last week with an extremely close ratification vote under some, let's say for the moment, We'll get into it more later, but less than good conditions, we'll say. So let's back up just a bit and explain why were they on strike. The first reason was that healthcare care costs ra- were, were risen considerably from the previous contract to $2,000 a year with a $4,000 deductible, which is much higher than they were paying before and That's no good. That's no good, folks. There were some other reasons, though, that they were on strike, which included the work, which, and this, for folks in unions, you know what this language means, the two tiers. Under the current contract, under the previous contract is what that means, workers are divided. Into two tiers, the and and this information. The next bit of information comes from Labor Notes, a Labor Notes article. Under the current contract, the one that expired as they went into negotiations that they went into strike over, workers are divided into two tiers. The first tier being. Core employees, those with more than 15 years of seniority and competitive. New hires start at $16.77 and get a dollar more each year for five years, up to $21.77, which is far less than the core top pay of $30 an hour under the rejected agreement which uh, under the first rejected agreement which was actually rejected by a percent of 90% to 10% for it 90% against it 10% for it under the reject that rejected agreement there are raises but tears are there to stay the division of the workers into multiple groups were there to stay in the in in that agreement that is very not good and but the, there are some raises and the new hires in one assembler classification for example would get up to $27 by 2026 instead of $21.77 which does seem like that accounts for inflation and a little bit more but still the people who are in the better tier are going to be getting significantly more, which is you don't want that because that creates a division in the workplace. And for what reason for the boss, additionally language in the rejected agreement would have allowed union officials to agree to an unspecified alternate work schedule, such as 4 10 hour days, alternate shift operations or other alternate schedules based on the needs of the business. Uh, Time and a half pay over eight hours in a day would be gone. So this kind of puts into context um, what workers are fighting for. They're fighting for much less than they used to have. while while management is making off like bandits. And so, these are those were the things that they were on strike for and why they rejected the initial agreement by such a large margin. And so, what happened? On April 17th, they went on strike, then they rejected the agreement, and they rejected other agreements two more times. So, in total, they rejected contract agreements three times, The membership did first by a 90 to 10 margin again by a 90 to 10 margin and then by a 60 to 40 margin. And finally, on a fourth vote on the language that was exactly the same as the third vote, workers accepted by 17 votes. It was almost f- a 50-50 split, just a razor-thin margin of acceptance. And what did the final contract look like and what changed in in the workers? What made them accept it that that didn't that they weren't happy with before? The final contract actually unfortunately looked a lot like the first one that they rejected. I think there were some nominal increases to wages, maybe some nominal decreases to healthcare costs, but the big issues were still there, which is very unfortunate for their workers and their families and their communities. And the big, one of the biggest issue which auto workers across the country are facing is tears. Tears
6: is still there. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith.
14: So, last week, not surprisingly... Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education voted to, uh, on their grand consolidation plan. Uh, As you know, the Commonwealth owns uh, 14 state-owned universities and colleges across uh, the Commonwealth. Uh, They want to take six of them and then consolidate them down to two. I've asked Jamie Martin to come talk with us. Jamie is the president of Abscuff, the union that represents the faculty and the coaches and all of the great folks who make our state-owned universities what
2: they are. Jamie, thanks for taking time for us. Uh thank you so much, Rick. It's always always a pleasure to be with you.
14: So, as I understand it and help me walk through some of this, I know up in the north, they're going to take Bloomsburg, Lockhaven, and mansfield and and do something with those three combine them in somehow and create something new. But I guess the argument was they're going to keep the campuses. I, 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 walk me through how that works. they They plan Rick. this to work,
2: or don't they even know? I, you know, Rick, I don't know there are so many details. Uh, that we don't yet know. There are so many big questions that have not yet been answered. So it was a bit disappointing that the Board of Governors voted uh, to move this forward without some of those details and answers. So for example, we have questions remaining about the NCAA and how they're going to rule about allowing uh, athletic teams on all six. Um, You know, you're talking about what's this going to look like? We're not sure, we don't know how many online courses students would have to take to complete their degrees. We're still not sure what the organizational structure will look like, so we don't know what departments or what disciplines will exist on which campuses. Uh, You know, we always say the devil's in the details, uh, but that surely is gonna be the case uh, in these two consolidations.
14: Look, I, I think they're the jewel of the of an education system. I think Pennsylvania is situated to be able to educate kids and keep them here uh, if we could make tuition more affordable. And for me, that comes back to the state actually coming back and picking up uh, the tuition like they used to in the past uh, to make those universities more affordable uh, for kids to be able to go to. Look, if you can't afford to go, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you do, how you move the pieces around on the
2: board, nobody's going to be able to afford to come. Exactly, and and that that really is the fundamental problem. So we're talking about you know we spent a lot of time over this past year talking about consolidation. When what we should have been doing is advo- advocating for appropriate funding for our universities. You know to, to be somewhere in the forty seventh, forty eighth uh, rank in funding for public higher ed. That that's the problem. I mean that's the key issue. Uh, and and instead of trying to I don't I don't know find a band aid uh, try to fix what looks like it's ailing us we should all be at the legislative in front of the legislative body asking for more money
14: so ultimately in because when i look at this i look at this from a worker perspective uh, i look at this as the the folks on this pashi board going how do we slash costs how do we get rid of people this seems to me to be a massive uh, layoff scheme and then i f- sadly foresee uh, more adjuncts more more things that are going to be well Again, not great for students and not a great draw, which is then, in my view, you know, really a concern where people aren't going to come and then you're going to have magnified any problem you ever had.
2: Right. Now, we're hoping that some of the money that uh, the governor has helped along with the General Assembly, this one time funding of two hundred million dollars, part of it will be used to help preserve jobs. So that was an important piece for us, for our sister union of AFSCME and, and the workers there. But certainly when you start to cut the faculty lines, you cut uh, staff, it has a major impact on the quality of education and their experience that they'll have at that university. So it doesn't make sense to me that you'd be consolidating at the same time you're thinking about cutting uh, if what you're trying to do is expand opportunities for students. yeah, I'm always a
14: believer of activism, of, you know, getting, uh, calling your representatives, doing something. We can, we can right wrongs. We can fix things. Uh, we can move in the right direction. Any chance of this going back to, to, you know, some bit of sanity or is this, this, this ship sailed?
2: I really am hopeful that, that during the discussion, of the board of governors, they talked about this being an iterative process that we will You know have benchmarks we have to hit metrics we'll have to look at we'll have to see how things are going we'll get answers to questions and so that's why i'm not seeing this as the end of the road this was one one step and i think there are still opportunities in the future to make a different decision If, if the board actually would you know get information that says they need to correct course that they will do that
14: jamie i appreciate your time keep up the great work yes thank you so much rick uh, good stuff. Jamie Martin, president of AppScuff. Uh, make sure you check out their website, appscuff.org. Love to hear your thoughts. A good idea? Consolidate down from six to two? Uh, you can email me, rick, at com. Quick break, right back after this. Stick around.
9: Remembering that united we bargain, divided we beg. Rick Smith.
15: I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers. And welcome to Solidarity Works. So I'm here with Leanne Foster, vice president for the United Steelworkers, who also heads our union's paper sector. Like many other industries, sustainability is coming up a lot more in conversation. It can be kind of easy to assume that this industry is not particularly environmentally friendly. Is this assumption wrong?
4: Yeah, I love that question because it gives me an opportunity to introduce this super green industry to people. And I do it whenever I can. So if you think about making paper, it takes three things. It takes fiber, it takes heat, and it takes water. And in each one of those areas now, the industry has developed green processes. And those range from forest management, energy processes, and also water conservation. And that has created a market and an environmental preference for our products.
15: And what are some of those green processes you mentioned, especially when you talk about forest management,
4: so you got to think about you got to think about forests as a living, breathing entity. And if you don't do any cutting at all, it's not good for the forest. A lot of people think that it is, but it's actually not. It stifles growth. That stifles carbon capture. And a lot of people think that the industry just goes in and clear cuts, and then it's just up to nature to make sure that something happens. But that's not the case at all. So the industry plants two trees for every one that they cut. And the demand for paper products ensures that forest supply wood, like I said before, it makes sure that, that the forest also is able to sequester as much carbon as possible. And then there's actually entities that have sprung up. So like the Sustainable Forestry Initiative or the Forest Steward- Stewardship Council, and almost every single company uh, in the industry abides by those standards that they have set up. And these are independent outside oversight groups. So they have to go and cut in a certain way and develop their force in a certain way in order to have that certification. And it's interesting, sometimes if you like pick up some envelopes or go get some copy paper, you'll see on it complies with SFI standards. And so they're all held to that standard. And everyone wants that standard and wants to be able to put that on their product because that attracts The customer. It's interesting because people think that, you know, the paper industry is this huge threat to forests, but right now the biggest threat to forests is construction. So as suburbs and cities expand, you have to cut down forest areas. And when you do, that's a permanent replacement. What the paper industry does is they temporarily use that product, but they replace it and they also recycle and are part of a complete Recycling chain, which also makes them very sustainable.
15: As far as energy goes, it seems like it would take a lot of energy to operate a large paper mill and to convert logs into paper. How does that work and how has that evolved as well?
4: So, most of the energy that we use for paper making is derived from the paper making process itself. In an integrated mill, for example, when you make a process called black liquor, And it's basically just a biomass waste. It comes out of the pulping process. And that liquor now is used to generate about two-thirds of the energy that every mill needs for production. And some companies are able to produce so much that they sell it back to the grid. So most of these companies consume nearly all of the black liquor that they produce. And so this is a very carbon-neutral form of renewable energy. And then the other piece that the energies or the industry's gotten really good at is the combined heat and power aspect. So we call it CHP. It's an energy efficient technology that generates electricity and captures the heat that otherwise would be wasted to provide thermal energy for the manufacturing process. And that accounts for almost all of the energy <laughs> or the electricity generated in the industry. I think there's only like a percent and a half that's not. And so When you drive by these big paper mills and you see them, you're thinking they're using a lot of energy, and that's not green, but they're actually using green energy to fuel what they're doing, also sometimes selling it back to the grid. I mean, I I have to be complimentary to the industry on this, and I I think it's a key thing that we have to keep in mind is that it's actually created jobs for the industry. This push to go green has caused the industry to adapt, but it's also created jobs.
15: Make sure to visit usw.org to learn more about the paper and pulp sector. Until next time.
16: Welcome to the Union News Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable, digital delight and appreciation. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce our featured guest for this episode. Zita Holborn actually needs no introduction to just about everyone who's listening to this podcast and a phenomenal record of contribution and achievement over 20 years or, or so. Uh, Vice President at PCS, co-founder of Baroque, author, vocalist, civil rights activist. I was delighted to to welcome her onto the show and particularly to talk about her role as co-chair of the Artists Union for England. Not an organisation that is desperately high profile, generally speaking, although very well known in the art world, and not an area that receives enough attention, which, as we shall find out, is not a fair reflection on the work that is done by the AUE. Uh, Zita Holborn, you're very welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. Thank you for for joining us.
5: Thank you very much for inviting me. Much appreciated.
16: Well, it's a a pleasure. And we're here to talk about your work with the Artists' Union uh, of England, for whom you are one of the joint national chairs, I understand.
5: That's correct, yes.
16: Um, Why do you think now there's an appetite for trade unionism amongst artists where there doesn't seem to have been one before? What's changed?
5: I think there probably always has been, but the way artists work, because most of them are self-employed and running their own practices, it may not have even occurred to them that you know they, they could join a union or they could form a trade union. So I think the artists have been aware for a long time of the kind of exploitation and bad treatment that they receive at times from employers or through the contracts that they they gain. But I think in terms of the artists that decided to set up AUE and establish AUE in the first place, we're talking about a period where we were in a decade of austerity, which was having disproportionate impacts on people working in the arts and the culture sector. We've now been hit by the, the pandemic, which has made things even harder. And our, our sector is one of the sectors that's hardest hit. So I think it's probably more about people not knowing where to go or, or what to do. And I think artists have always organised themselves in other ways, even before we had a union. And there was, of course, an artist union in Scotland before ours yes. was established. Yeah.
16: And it's, AU, is, as you were saying, is a young union, established in 2014, I, I think. How has it developed since then? Membership has grown steadily year on year, but I think... The whole notion of, of a head office or getting a stable executive committee, that's quite challenging when you're starting out and, and the numbers, the membership numbers aren't that great.
5: It is really challenging. And it's been interesting for me personally because of course I'm involved in a union that is established and yes. established yeah. many decades before my involvement in it. So going from that, where I took for granted that we had all these staff and a headquarters and <laughs> regional offices and all sorts of resources to having absolutely nothing and effectively completely dependent on running on people power because we don't have a premises, we don't have any paid staff and that sort of thing. So we have to do everything ourselves. So it is a challenge. Sometimes it's a bit like a chicken and egg situation, that you need more members in order to have the funding to establish those (laughs) things, but you need those things to build the membership Membership. and organise So it is a challenge and it is a struggle. And once we were established in 2014, officially, you know, declared a union, it takes a a few years just to get off the ground and to start to build some structures. And we affiliated to the General Federation of Trade Unions. We affiliated to the TUC, process you have to go through, trying to build some structures, trying to get people engaged and wanting to be involved, as you said, on our, our National Executive Committee. And because of the nature of artists' work, we do have a turnover on our um, National Executive Committee because... People may get projects and work and they need to focus on that because they need to earn a living because yeah. it's precarious as it is. And so they may have to step down for a while bit to focus on the work that they've got um, coming in. And they're trying to balance running their practices. And most of us, yeah. we, have, we obviously have art practices because we would be eligible to be members yeah. in the first place. But we may also have a day job on top of that. And so we're trying to juggle everything. We're making steady progress. And I think we punch above our weight for a small union.
16: Zita, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into the a- AUE and your work in it. It's a great story. It's a necessary story, I have to say. So So uh, I wish the AUE all the best in the, in the future.
5: That's really appreciated. And thank you once again for having me on. Well, thank you very much. You are listening
2: to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum. Thomas Frank, author of What's the Matter with Kansas? Listen, Liberal and Pity the Billionaire, is in town this month visiting his dad. We'll ask him, what's the matter now, Tom? We'll get his take on populism, the Democrats, and what the Wuhan lab leak hypothesis could mean for our trust in science. You wrote an article recently that
6: it gets at this, this issue of populism and expertise and elitism and a little bit... That way it kind of got to me a little bit, because you're talking about science. So you wrote an article in The Guardian called... A British publication. Yeah, Those are British, my two... Right. I write for a British,
7: one British publication and one French publication, <laughs> yeah. that's it.
6: If the Wuhan lab leak hypothesis is true, expect a political earthquake. And you ask, what if science lied to us? Or worse, what if science did this? So, yeah. what are the ramifications here for the establishment? If science, which used to be our holdout for rationale and something that the populists always have believed in, turns well, out they believed to, in
7: it, but in a, in a complicated right, way. They had a complicated right. relationship Explaining with it. That it, to us. it. It it wasn't that they. So the word populism now means something like organized ignorance, and that's not what populism was at all. Uh, populists just they. Uh, really respected learning. These were, by and large, these were not highly educated people. These were farmers. These were workers, that kind of thing. They, by definition, had not gone to college, probably hadn't gone to high school, but they, they admired learning, and the organization that they belonged to, the Populist Party, would send lecturers around the country to tell people about, like, modern economics and stuff like that. They said, we live in a democracy. Learning science, these things, economics, they have to answer to the people. The needs of the people come first. That's all it was. Now, let's talk about the pandemic for a second here, because I was one of those guys that followed the rules. I did everything the way you're supposed to do. I did what, whatever Dr. Fauci was saying. And I even got in these uh, like a, a terrible argument with a member of my family who was watching Fox News and believed in the lab leak hypothesis. And I'm like, no, that's been debunked. It got a, the fact checkers looked into it. And it, that's a conspiracy theory that didn't happen. And then I'll be damned. These, these news stories start coming out in journals that I read and respect, like bulletin of the atomic scientists that are saying actually the circumstantial evidence for this is very good i I started thinking about it and said what if this is true just think about all the ways this is going to shake our faith Trump was president, it felt when he was president like everything had been. All the idols were shattered and all the things that we believed in were were being attacked. And here comes COVID. And COVID, obviously a terrible catastrophe, but it did have the virtue of putting science back in charge. And it felt there like towards the end of the Trump years, you've been dismissing experts and you've been ignoring what they have to say. And here's COVID. And COVID is making you pay attention to these people. And so, so COVID felt like it was, in a way, was restoring the right order of things, and we were all people like me. I'm very liberal. People like me were saying, "Yeah, I, yeah, you know, it's, it's believe in science, trust science, follow the science, etc." And to get back to, remember, I said there's a class agenda in everything. Yeah. Think about all those slogans that I just these sort of yard sign slogans. What do they actually mean? They mean respect us. The the highly educated white collar elite. Respect us. Believe us. Follow us. Put the proper authorities back where they belong. And if this stuff turns out to be true, the the coronavirus escaped from a laboratory in Wuhan, China. And I'm not, by the way, I'm you know, not yeah. going down that road where I'm gonna blame the Chinese. No. I'm saying lab leaks happen. Right. They happen all, all the over the place. Yeah. yeah. I went to the University of Chicago years ago when I was a younger person and, and they had a I forget what got out of the laboratory there, but it killed a guy. These things happen. They happen with mathematical certainty. And so it is totally possible that these people were doing experiments that are called gain-of-function experiments on bat coronaviruses, and something like that happened. And by the way, gain-of-function experiments are not only done in China. We do them here in America. They're extremely... It's an extremely dangerous field of science. It's considered a legitimate uh, research area. But it's extremely dangerous. And if you had a lab leak on this kind of thing, this is exactly what it would look like. It would cause a, it would cause a global pandemic. You know, instead of being the heroes of this, and and I give them all the credit that they deserve, like they developed this vaccine incredibly fast, but they turn out to be like the villains of this and then tried to cover it up. Which is the part of this where it really starts turning your stomach that you've got all of these scientists signing uh, group letters and saying, don't investigate this, uh, that this is a conspiracy theory. And these people turn out to have huge conflicts of interest. Ooh, this is gross. And then it, it gets worse. The social media companies were censoring any conversation yeah. about this. If this turns out to be true, you've those companies have to be put out of business tomorrow, that they are actively
6: stopping well, a conversation about what turns out to be true. And I think, and you said, you were referring to the social media companies, but companies is the key thing here about the science, because... As a scientist myself, you know by nature, science is skeptical. So proper exactly. science is skeptical. Yes, no, Sean, and that's and such a, that is, is so important because what's going that, on here is a, is, a, is, a, is it's and it's, the social, is social commercialization. sciences are skeptical. This is, this that is, is what science is. It is, 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 is it's a way,
7: it's a way of thinking critically right. about a, a hypothesis, and like and the, it's not worshiping a, a class of people who went to fancy schools. Who just say this? But is like is, Nancy right. Pelosi, what was her li- What was her line? Science is a uh, Science is an answer to our prayers. Yeah. There's this way of talking about science that liberals embraced in the last two years. It's like it's a religion.
9: Yeah. It's, that's no, that's, that's
7: not what it is. Right. Science is a process of getting at the truth, of attacking conventional...
6: Well, Tom, I appreciate you being on the show. We are out of time. It's been a great conversation as always. and. Whenever you're in town, let us know. We'll bring you on and we'll just have another free oh, conversation. Uh, it, this is my great. pleasure.
7: Yeah, let's do it again next week. We'll talk about the. <laughs> <we'll> talk <laughs> yeah, about the I got like two
6: more pages of questions we didn't even get to. So, we'll, uh, we'll
7: talk about fun things in Kansas City, favorite barbecue stands that are no right. more, stuff like that.
6: <laughs> all right.
11: Welcome to the Seventh Street Chronicles, a podcast from your Charlotte Firefighters Association, Local 660.
13: All right, and welcome to this episode of the 7th Street Chronicles. I'm your host today, Tom Brewer. Along with that, we have two special guests. We have Local six sixty zone Mike Guerin, along with Travis Halsey. So our guest today, former Marine, former Charleston firefighter. He was uh, a police officer, He's an author. He's a comedian. He's a motivational speaker. He's been a keynote speaker.
8: In my book, Create Your Own Light, I wrote this book and it's about overcoming stuff that we encounter. Like, I was, when I was in the fire department, I was injured in the sofa superstore that killed our nine guys. And up until that point, I had experienced a, a ton of trauma throughout my life. And that was kind of my tipping point. And what I do is I talk about in that book is what happened to me afterwards. It was my downward spiral that sent me out of control. This happens to a lot of unfortunate brothers and sisters in our profession. I was on the body recovery team that night and all of those guys I knew very personally. And one of them, Lewis Mulkey, was my best friend on the job. And like 15 or 20 of us were on the body recovery teams. And we all had to go in there that night and find them when I wrote that book. I wanted to uh, learn a lot more about myself because we didn't have help back then. We didn't have mental health awareness. Nobody, we didn't even talk about mental health, man. Cause you know how it is back in the old days. You didn't talk about your problems. If you did, you were considered weak or you were considered you're like you're not strong enough to handle the job. And you were actually looked at as more of a liability than anything. And so we just buried everything and kept it inside and, that's how I got into the, the speaking industry where I speak around the country about mental wellness and leadership and resiliency. And I developed a course called Post Traumatic Purpose that I teach. It's a two to roughly two to four hour course, just depending, but it's highly interactive. And I, I interact with first responders and we talk about this stuff. We have the hard conversations, the conversations we know we, that we need to have, but nobody really wants to open up and be the first one to talk about it. And it's actually, it's a really good thing, man. And it says in the culture slowly changing, we're not there yet, but we're making strides to a better place for, for our men and women. And in- I knew I was having problems from all of the things that I experienced. It wasn't just my seeing my nine friends dead and burnt beyond recognition. It was a lot of other, it was a lot of other things that, that went into play and I, I was becoming violent at work. I was assaulting members of my fire department. It was all every time it was swept under the rug because these were signs and symptoms that I was showing and nobody was doing anything about it. And it wasn't that they didn't care. It's just that they weren't educated on signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Nobody knew about it. This was a an unspoken thing that we were experiencing. And I'm threatening to throw fire academy instructors out of a four or five story training tower. And nobody thought that, there's anything wrong with that. Just, Oh, that's just Travis being Travis. So what happened long story short, my behavior spun out of control. I started drinking really badly and I was at work drunk one night, man. And I didn't want this weight on me anymore. And I didn't know how to get this weight off of my shoulders. I didn't know what to do. I was scared and I just wanted, I just wanted it to stop and go away. So I decided to stick my pistol in my mouth after drinking all night. And I, I was dry firing it into my mouth. It was a Glock. When you pull the trigger on a Glock or every pistol, the trigger pull goes back so far before it sends the uh, the firing pin forward. And I wanted to hear where exactly where that click was. So it wouldn't be so I wouldn't have to guess. So I would know exactly when that bullet was coming. And then I loaded the weapon. I racked it and shoved it back in my mouth after dry firing a few times. And I got to that point that I felt was it. And I just stopped. And I don't know why I wanted to die. But I, I often make a joke like I didn't have the balls to do it. And I think what it was, man, I think I was meant to do more with my life. And whatever reason, I stopped. And then I, but I found myself in that same position years later when I was out of the fire service without a purpose. And I felt empty and hollow inside. And I just didn't want to feel like that anymore. And I wanted to leave this world. And what I ended up realizing was, Hey, if I'm not the best me, then nobody wins here. And I have to be selfish. And that's where I really learned the art of being selfish. Selfishness is not necessarily a bad thing. When you're selfish with your mental health, everybody around you usually will come out prosperous because of that. And so me being selfish with my mental health, it allows me to be a better father, a better husband, a better friend. And that's what I've learned. All judgment aside, we're allowed to be a little bit fucked up we're human beings it's all right man there's nothing wrong with that
13: so anyone out there struggling the only thing i want to add is you'll be surprised how relieved you feel once you actually do share your story it's not always easy but once you do get it out there and you realize that like you guys said people are in the same place or want to help we're good at going on calls and helping other people we talk about sisterhood and brotherhood We really do got to look after our brothers and sisters. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And the first time's always the hardest. The first time's always the hardest. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Travis. All right. Yeah. Hey,
11: glad to do it. Thank you guys for having me.
8: My pleasure, guys. Thank you.
11: Hey, thanks for listening. We hope you tune in to the next episode. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to stay updated on the next episode. Also, while you're at it, like us on Facebook,
13: follow us on Twitter, and make sure you check out our website at www.cffa660.org.
11: Stay strong, stay union.
14: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1913. That was the day 9,000 copper miners in the Keweenaw region of Upper Peninsula, Michigan, went out on strike. Organized by the Western Federation of Miners, the strike raged on for over eight months, witnessing devastating tragedy in a Christmas Day fire and ending in bitter defeat. The strike was waged over basic issues like the eight hour day, higher wages, mine safety and union recognition. But strikers were also fed up with the company's paternalism and intrusion into their personal lives. They also worried for their jobs with the introduction of labor-saving machinery. The Western Federation of Miners succeeded early on in shutting down the mines. But the Copper Barons wouldn't budge. By August, many mines reopened with scab labor. Later that month, deputies shot two strikers dead and wounded two others as they returned home from attempting to collect strike benefits. The incident became known as the Sieberville Massacre. Striking miners were absolutely devastated when on Christmas Day, 73, mostly children, were trampled to death during a Christmas party and benefit at the Italian Hall in Calumet. Witnesses remembered seeing a man with a Citizens Alliance button just moments before someone yelled fire that caused the stampede. Soon after the Italian Hall disaster, Western Federation of Miner President Charles Moyer was shot by a Citizens Alliance mob, then loaded, bleeding, onto a train bound for Chicago. By April, the union was broke, the strike was broken, and the miners resolved to return to work. Bosses would only rehire strikers once they had turned in their union cards. The copper mines in the region would finally be organized some 30 years later in a campaign led by Mine Mill during the years 1939 to 1943. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com.
2: on next week's Tales of the Resistance. The San Francisco Mime Troupe will be hosting a discussion on racial equity and police violence, facilitated by Kari Barclay, with special guests Danielle Purifoy from Durham Beyond Policing, Kat Brooks from the Anti-Police Terror Project, and Michael Jean Sullivan from the SF Mime Troop. Audio engineering by Will McCandless.
9: That's it for this edition of Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 100 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows. You'll find them at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag #LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon, Melanie Smith, Chris Bankert-Drowns, and me. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips, with special credit to Mel Smith for helping out. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net, and find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. We really hope you enjoy this show, and we especially hope it inspires you to explore the shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. There are more than 125 now across the country and around the world. These are ordinary folks. They're working hard to air the voices of working people. If you do like the show, you can help spread the word about this amazing and growing world of labor radio and podcast shows you can like the show share it on social media and give us a review help us build labor radio and podcast solidarity thanks very much for labor radio podcast weekly this is chris garlott urging you to stay active and of course stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show